0: Can Be New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. I want all of you to know Jesus loves you. Today you may have come and felt a lot different than that. Maybe you felt like you were on the opposite end of the scale, thinking, my goodness, I can't even get my life together. I'm struggling. I'm trying to to do the best I can, but I just keep making the same mistakes, and you wonder about God's love for you, and what I want to say today is his love is unconditional, and what he wants you to hear today is he does love you. He loves you very, very much. With that in mind, what I want you to do is open your Bibles with me to John, the Gospel of John chapter 3. We're going to continue our series, Return to Your First Love. And I want to talk just a moment about John the Baptist. I know the gospel writer John is writing about John the Baptist, what he sees in his life. And we're going to make some observations concerning John the Baptist and how his life and his ministry really can be adapted to our own lives. There's things that we can apply. John the Baptist was one of those characters in the Bible that was here today, gone tomorrow. He really was. He came in. He had a mission. He knew what it was. But he wasn't around very long. And so the question that I always ask myself is, how does someone do this? I mean, how does someone receive a call like this and and are thrust in the forefront of of ministry, of of, of scripture, of, of the time, of the culture, and then just slips away really quietly Uh, John the Baptist is a great example for us in that area. I want to remind you also is uh, a month from right now, we're going to be taking a group. We will be there. A group of about 35 of us from this church will be in Israel. And so you can continue to pray for us. For those that are going, I was in correspondence with Pastor Jack Hayford. He will be there the same time we will be there. And I've asked him if he could come and just bring a devotional. And he said he'd love to do that. So I'm looking forward to the treats, the surprises, really, that God brings our way. uh, Not only there, but... Altogether, the Lord just has a way of blessing us. Uh, pull out your bulletin. If you have your bulletin, pull that out. I want you to look at something. I want you to look at point number one, point number two, and point number three. If you look at the bulletin and you've been around a while, you know immediately when you walk in, it's me today. I'm preaching because there are three points and a lot of blanks. So uh, when Al preaches, there are... 36 and a half points, and there are a lot of blanks you've got to fill in. But today, you just take those three points. But what I want you to see there is where it says in each one of those, one, two, and three, Jesus knew. Change that. Scratch it out. I know it's hard to scratch Jesus' name out, but go ahead and do that and put John. John the Baptist knew. So a little typo there. We're correcting that, but that's all right. We're going we're gonna to keep going. Jake Plummer is a former NFL quarterback, and what he's remembered for most isn't really his football statistics. They were good, but that's not what he's known for. He's remembered for leaving the game in the prime of his career. You see, at age 32, he walked away from millions of dollars, and he moved to all places, Sandpoint, Idaho. In Sandpoint, uh, he hangs around with a bunch of old guys twice his age, and he plays handball. That's what he loves to do. That's his passion. An article recently written on Jake the Snake said, only a handful of pro football players have left the game in their prime. Barry Sanders, Tiki Barber, and John Frank. The article went on to say that more common is the athlete who can't bring himself to cut the cord, whether he does it gracefully, or sometimes it's an embarrassing ordeal. Uh, Jake Plummer's model and inspiration for leaving football was the former strong safety of the St. Louis, or excuse me, that's an old time, the Phoenix Cardinals, and his name's Pat Tillman. Uh, They were college buddies. They entered ASU about the same time. They enjoyed football. But after 9-11, Pat Tillman left the game to join the Army. He felt compelled. There was a passion to defend our country. In April of 2004, Pat Tillman was killed by friendly fire in Afghanistan. At his funeral, Jake gave one of the eulogies and some of what he said and what he talked about concerning his old football buddy was he had a knack for an understanding of what it meant to leave and know why you're leaving something, to leave something gracefully, to do it at the right time. And the truth is we really don't have very many role models in that area. The examples that we have today in our world are people who move up the ladder. There aren't very many people who show us or teach us how to gracefully move down the ladder. And that's why I want us to look at John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, because it really is a here today, gone tomorrow kind of story when you look at John the Baptist's life. You see, John the Baptist is an example of a person who knew how to keep his balance when all the things around him were shifting and changing. It was a tumultuous time. It was a time where cultures were clashing, where religious zealots were running into each other trying to grab power. And John the Baptist comes on the scene, and in the prophetic scheme of things, he's in a transition. And he recognizes that his job is to make way for a Messiah. And that's what he's all about. But the amazing thing is is how he does this, how he's here today and gone tomorrow. His waning prominence really unnerved his disciples while he maintained his own composure. It's in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, that we discover how he keeps his wits about him in the shifting times of of popularity, popularity going up and down, and especially concerning John the Baptist. I want you to listen to what it says, beginning at verse 22. It says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. And there were people coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi... That man who who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am one sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Amazing statement. You don't hear this very often. In fact, I don't think I've heard this at all when it comes to ministry or business or life in general. Someone just stepping up and saying, I I need to fade away. I need to disappear so someone else can gain prominence. That's exactly what John the Baptist does. This, This here is the first and probably the most important thing that John the Baptist knew about his life. Number one, he knew who was in control. It's amazing, isn't it? He knew who was in charge. John knew he wasn't and God was. He clearly states that in verse 27. There's something so peaceful when you come to this place of realizing God's sovereignty in your life. When you recognize that God is in total control. He's fully in control of your life because you've given that to him. There's a peace that's overwhelming. A peace that the Bible says passes all understanding. That's the kind of peace I'm sure that John the Baptist had. In verse 26, John's disciples were attempting what we call today in the political world damage control. They they were trying to bolster his image. They felt that John's reputation was being severely harmed because more people were following Jesus and not him. It's interesting because when you look through the Bible, there are similar stories that I like to compare to. And and if you look at Numbers chapter 11, there's that kind of story there. there. There's a story about Joshua and Moses and 70 elders, and they go up into the presence of God onto a mountain. Well, when they come back down, two of those elders start to prophesy in the camp. Well, this bothers Joshua. And so he goes to Moses and he says, hey, listen, you need to take care of this. In fact, what he says here is, you'd better do something about these fellows. They're prophesying in the camp. In other words, Joshua is saying to Moses, you've got to do some damage control. These guys are going to become more popular than you if you don't do something about it. Moses' response was, was amazing. He said, would to God that all people were prophets. Would to God that all people were prophets and had the Spirit of God on them. How could Moses do this? How could he say such a thing? Well, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says this. It says, Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. What he was doing is he was rejoicing to see others successfully carrying out the work of God. Now, you have to ask yourself the same question. Are you in that same frame of mind? Do you have that same attitude? When you see others succeed, are you happy for them? Are are you joyful that they're, they're, they're really making a difference for the kingdom of God? Or is it the other way around? Are you jealous? Are you envious? That'll be challenged somewhere along the line. That's tested in all of our lives. In verse 29, John shocks his followers by telling them that the popularity of Jesus over his not only doesn't bother him, But it makes him happy. It completes his joy. If you look at the word complete, it's it's a similar word to the word perfect. In the New Testament, it's the word teleos. means it's completed or it's finished. It's what Jesus said when he was on the cross. And he said, it is finished. It is completed. John is saying something here. He's saying, this is the thing that I've been waiting for. This is the thing that all the universe has been waiting for. All mankind has been waiting for a Messiah. And what it does for me is it makes my joy complete. That I'm excited, I'm happy about what God is up to. You see, it's one thing to believe God and when he's in control and be happy when all the things that are around you are going your way. It's another thing when my reputation is being wrongly targeted. And that's what's happening to John. And here's how John handled it. I like to make these observations because when I face things like this, I want to do it in a a godly way, a biblical way. And certainly this takes place in John's life. First of all, he remembered who he represented. John knew that. It's so easy to lash out when you're being falsely accused or misrepresented. It's so easy to get angry because it's you. I mean, it hurts. It stings. I remember being falsely accused one time early on in ministry, and it bothered me. I lost a lot of sleep. I didn't function well during the day. I remember driving home one time and just about ready to, just to break down, and I went into my garage, and I stood in my garage, and of all places, God met me there. You know, God meets you in a lot of different places, He met me in the garage and he said this, I am the glory and the lifter of your head. You don't bow your head to this. You don't give in to this. You need to lift your head. And the instruction God gave me was literal. Lift your head. So I stood in my garage and if you would have been there, you'd have thought I was nuts. But I stood in my garage and I lifted my head and I said, you are the glory and the lifter of my head. You're the glory and the lifter of my head. I'll tell you, there was something that took place spiritually that made a difference in my life that day. My circumstances didn't change altogether, but I changed. I want you to do that with me. Would you lift your head? Repeat after me. You are the glory and the lifter of my head. Just say it. You are the glory and the lifter of my head. Say that again. You are the glory and the lifter of my head. You know, some of us really needed to say that today. Because I I think I have a suspicion that there are probably people here today that are dealing with false accusations, you're dealing with things that are difficult, and you need to know that he is the glory and the lifter of your head. That's the promise you have. That's the promise God gives you. Remember who you represent. It's during these times that we need to remind ourselves who we stand for. We stand in the, in, in a, in the place for a lot of people, we represent Jesus Christ. You know, the Christian journey offers some pretty incredible challenges. Some that almost seem insurmountable. But none greater than the discipline of restraint. (laughs) Let me tell you what that is. That's being totally and fully submitted and committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That means you have submitted yourself to the Holy Spirit. And you've said, Lord, I'm under your submission. And when that happens, you have to operate in the discipline of restraint. Can I say this? I want to be really honest. We live in a... A society that, 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 that tells us we can say whatever we want to say. That we have a right just to say whatever we want to say. I want to tell you this. When you are under the control of God's Holy Spirit, you don't have the right to say whatever you want to say. It's during the times that we're being accused or falsely represented that we need to say, Lord, we, uh, we need to operate in the discipline of restraint. Now, here's something else. Don't let what's being said go to waste. <laughs> now, that's a big one. And honestly, I, I, I hate this part. I, I don't like this part. I don't like this part when my enemy is accusing me and God says, pay attention and listen. I, I don't like that at all because I know this person wants to do me harm or these people want to do me harm. And the Lord says, you need to take out of that any morsel of truth. Because oftentimes your accusation, those that are hurled at you, are laced with truth. And maybe only 1%. 99% is false and it's hurtful, it's painful. But there may be a morsel of truth in there that God says, listen, I want you to pay attention to that. That's difficult, isn't it? It really is. Because you don't want to give in to your enemy. You don't want to let them know that, that there's probably something there you need to pay attention to. It just goes against your nature. There may be things that I need to work out between God and myself. Things that point out weakness in my life. Let me say this. Don't miss the opportunity to better your game. Even if it comes by way of the enemy. And when God wants to speak to you, let him use any vessel to accomplish that purpose. And I want to say that again. Let God use any vessel to accomplish that purpose. And the reason I say that is oftentimes we want to dictate to God how we're going to get the message. We, we know we need to hear from God, and so we say, Lord, bring it this way or bring it that way. I'll have ears to hear if it comes this way, wrapped in a nice package. But I want to say this to you. God doesn't usually work that way. He usually brings a word to you that you have to humble yourself and you have to listen. Because the way he delivers it requires humility on your part to hear it. That was in about my third year as an associate pastor in a church in Portland. And I got up one Sunday morning and I was really excited because God said, I'm gonna talk to you today. I wanna speak to you face to face And I was excited. I thought, this is great. I want to hear the Word of God. So I got up, got ready for church, and Annette and I drove to church. I I got there. I went to the back room, the green room, where the pastors all pray. I was on staff then, so I, I stood there, and I knew what God had told me, that He was going to speak to me, and I thought, well, God, I know what you're going to do. You're going to talk to me through my pastor, you know, you're going you're gonna to speak to me through him because uh, this is the dignified way of doing it and I'm a pretty important person and the pastor needs to talk to me. Well, he didn't say anything. Then I tried to even get his attention. You know, I tried to bump up against him and say hi, you know, wave at him. It didn't work. We uh, were at a church that had a lot of international speakers coming through and we had one that day and I thought, well, I'm sure that this person's going to give me a word. God said that this person's going to give me a word and I waited and that didn't happen. I left that room and I thought, I know what's going to happen. It's going to be an elder or a council member. That's how God's going to bring this word to me and that didn't happen either. The whole service had gone by. At the end of the service, I waited around for a while but, but no one approached me. On the way out the door, someone tapped me on the shoulder. And they said, kind of in a broken, halted voice, I have a word for you. Right then, I I knew that was the Lord. But when I turned around, what I recognized is the person giving me a word was was mentally impaired. And the Lord said, I want you to listen. And I want you to hear this word. That day changed my life. Because that day opened up all the possibilities that God has for me. That when he wants to speak to you, he'll choose the vessel. Do you have ears? Do you have eyes? Ears that hear, eyes that see really what God is up to. Let him speak to you. Don't dictate to him the vessel that he needs to use. Just be open to what God wants to say. Can you say amen to that? One more thing here is pray for your accuser. (laughs) Man, I thought we were going to go right through this and not have to say that. Listen, don't pray that God would strike them dead. Don't pray that God would bless them with a brick. Don't do that. That's not the way you pray. When I say pray for your accuser, there's a good way to do it. It's in a way that's redemptive. It's a way that forgiveness paves for you, that in your heart you live with an attitude of forgiveness. That's just the way you are. You know, we need to make choices to live our lives in the spirit of forgiveness. And when we do that, there's blessing that comes to our life. And so that what we need to do is we need to pray that God would just touch our accuser, that God would even bless our accuser. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9 says this, to live in harmony with one another, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. This tells me that when, when I pray for my accuser, I stay tapped in to the blessings of God in my life. Listen, God doesn't want you to miss any blessing. So you need to follow his plan, his prescription for blessing. And one of those things is to pray for your accuser. See, John the Baptist understood the blessing that comes from knowing God in a total and complete way. He knew that God was in control, and because God was in control, there was blessing that came to his life. One of those blessings was mentioned already. His joy was complete. What a great blessing. I think John probably experienced some other things, an inexhaustible sense of peace, an ageless sense of hope. All of these things were given to John because he followed the way of God. I think the second great thing that John the Baptist knew during a time when his popularity was waning is he knew God's assignment for his life. That's what it says in verses 28 and 29. Let me tell you the first and most basic principle of knowing your assignment. And if anyone wants to guess, you can because when you guess, you may even miss it. It's so obvious. Knowing your assignment begins by knowing what it isn't. There are a lot of people running around today and they're trying to do things that they're not called to do. They're trying to be somebody they're not called to be. God has made you who you are and and you honor God by living that out and not being someone else. Not trying to do something else that someone else is supposed to be doing. Oftentimes God will let you know that, hey, this isn't the thing for you. What a great lesson that is. I grew up in the home of a school teacher. My dad was a, a counselor, a school teacher in middle school. That's that 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 gives you a, a clue of to why I am the way that I am. But it's a crazy place. Middle school, I love it. Just crazy. But my dad made sure that his boys did things that were difficult in the area of work. He made sure that we laid brick. He made sure that we poured concrete. He made sure that we dug ditches. He made sure we did all of this. I was pouring concrete or working with concrete when I was seven years old. My dad would just bring us out. And I thought, man, this is a hard life for the kid who belongs to a school teacher. What in the world is he up to? About 15 years old, I asked him, I said, dad, you're a school teacher. Why do you do all these hard things? And he said this, He said, In life, it's not important, it's not enough just to know what you want to do. You need to know what you don't want to do. I realized that was one of them. That's hard work. But oftentimes, we have to find out this way. We have to find out what it isn't. One of my most favorite TV scenes is a Seinfeld episode where George Costanza gets fired. And after his firing, he's in a conversation with Jerry about future employment. And he says to Jerry, you know, I think I could be a general manager of a baseball team. Jerry says, well, you know, that requires that you are in sports and you're not and, and you've never played the game. And he says, oh, that's, that, I, that's not fair. He says, well, maybe I can be an oceanographer. And Jerry said, well, you, you know, you need to have a lot of science background for that. And, 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 and you know what? You don't have a lot of science background. And, and George kept naming these different occupations and Jerry said these aren't the things that are going to work. What was George doing? He was he was trying to do things that he wanted to do, but he wasn't called to do it. It wasn't what he needed to do, and that's what we need to recognize. Listen, we need to know what it isn't. We need to know that. And John the Baptist makes it very clear concerning what he wasn't. He said, "I am not the Christ." Make no mistake about this. If you think I'm the Christ, I'm not. The Christ is coming after me. I'm going before him. You need to know that he's coming, but it's not me. For John, there was a very clear line between what he was and what he wasn't. Boy, I wish more people would figure that out on American Idol. (laughs) You know, someone just needs to go and say, you know what, you aren't a singer. And they need to say to themselves, I'm not a singer. There are more deceived people on that show than I've ever seen in all my life. All these people gathering, they're duped. They've duped themselves or their mother did something to them. I don't know what it is. (laughs) I tell you, there are reasons why this is important for you and me to understand. I think there are a few reasons that are important. One is, it reminds me that I'm on a team. That there's more involved than just my interests. There's always a bigger picture. And that's why the Bible uses the word body when it talks about the church. There's a tendency to let my passion for the vision I have override a sensitivity and a regard for the rest of the body of Christ. There are things that you're passionate about out there. There are things that you take seriously. And sometimes you wonder, well, why doesn't everyone else take it seriously? The reason why is because they're not you. God's given you that call. He's given you that passion. You need to be reminded that you're part of a, of, of a bigger picture. It's easy to get caught up in the good of my ministry and the good of serving while dismissing the value of others in their ministry. And that's why knowing what I can't do also reminds me to appreciate other team members. When I'm here, I'm always reminded that I'm part of a, of a, of a bigger plan. When I'm here, I appreciate all the gifts and talents that I see in this place. I know how many of you are involved in community. I know how many of you are working hard to raise a family. I know how many are involved, even serving at this church. It's uh, it's amazing, but it takes a team. It takes an effort to be successful. All of us are part of this is why, again, it's important to hold steady. When we encounter differences, when we encounter friction with others, God is making you and God is making me more like Jesus Christ. Would you appreciate that? Look around and, and see the personality, see the different talents, and, and embrace that, appreciate that. The first time I learned that lesson, I... I was 15 years old, I was selected by my youth pastor to go over to Scandinavia on a mission trip during the 1972 Olympics. We all staged and met at LAX, and there were about 500 kids, and we all gathered in this great big area, great big room. And they divided us into groups. And before they did that, I ran into a guy that was about my age. And I thought, my goodness, we are opposites. And right away, I hate to say it, right away, I made the judgment of not liking him. I thought, this guy is just, just I don't like this guy. So they divided us into groups of four. And he was in my group. And then they took those groups of four and they made those groups smaller and he was in the same group I was that was smaller. And they kept breaking us down to finally he ends up being my roommate for four weeks. What are the chances of that happening? Except that God was involved. It was like God was moving these little chess pieces, you know? And I was trying to run and he was like, no, 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 no. You know, God has you in places like that. There are people who have been divinely put in your life, orchestrated, handpicked by God to mess you up, (laughs) just to rub you the wrong way. And the reason he does that is because he wants you to be more like Jesus Christ. God's good at that. I love God when he does that. Here's the third and last thing that I think John knew. And that was to keep his trust fully and totally in Jesus. That's in verse 30. He said that Jesus must become greater while he became less. You know, to do and to say things like that, it takes incredible trust. An incredible amount of trust. John put his whole life in the hands of Jesus and so should we. We should follow his example. And the reason we should Follow this. And the reason we should trust in Jesus Christ with all of our heart, I think, is found in John chapter 15, in verses 12 through 17. Let me read it to you. It says, "'My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends.' This is my command, love each other. So why should we put all of our trust in Jesus Christ? I think there are three reasons. Number one, he died for you. You know, we could stop right there. We only really need one reason, and that's it. He died for you. He died for your sins. That's why you should trust him. The second reason is found in this passage is that He has given you a relationship with him. You can call him friend. So the other reason we trust him is because we have a friendship with Jesus Christ. And then the third reason here is he chose you. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is found in the book of Ephesians. And it says you were chosen before the foundations of the earth. Isn't that amazing? You didn't choose God. God chose you. He chose you before you even materialized. He chose you before you even became flesh. God chose you before the foundations of the earth. He knew you. That's the reason we can trust in him. He was born John Jordan O'Neill on November thirteenth, 1911. His buddies called him Buck. He had a lifetime batting average of 270, and he played first base. You probably have never heard of him because he was in the old... Negro League, and he played for the Kansas City Monarchs. Before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier, he played baseball. Back in 1981, at a reunion of U.S. Negro League players in Ashland, Kentucky, a young Sports Illustrated writer wanted to talk to him, and he asked him a question, do you have any regrets that, that you came before Jackie Robinson? Do you, do, you, do you have any sadness that you, you didn't get to play in the major leagues? And he responded. He said, I don't waste any tears. I didn't come along too early. I didn't come along too late. I came at the right time. Listen, the right time is for you right now. You're here. God has given you a mission, a purpose. John the Baptist shows us how to live that out. John the Baptist lets us know that God's in control He communicates to us to know our assignment and then also to trust in Jesus. Would you do this? Would you just bow your head with me for a moment? I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward. I'm going to to also ask that we have our prayer team just go and make their way around in the sanctuary because right now we're going to continue to worship the Lord. If you're our guests, if you're just visiting, we just take time after the word of God to respond. It really has to do with being more than just a hearer of the word, but being a doer of the word. And so if you need someone to pray with you today during worship, you feel free to just get up right where you are and go receive prayer. We're going to worship the Lord together. And as we do, I want you to know this. You can lift your hands. You can stand. you You can kneel. You can be seated. You can come up front here and kneel. Or you go to a prayer team. This is between you and the Lord. We're wanting to do business with God here today. Listen, right now God is just leading us in a wonderful way and we need to respond to that. And I want to pray that way. Father, I just ask in Jesus' name that our hearts would be tender and soft to respond to your word. Lord, I know you're doing business with many of us here in this place about our relationship with you. And we just thank you for that. We just ask that you would continue to do a good work we just thank you for that father in Jesus name amen can I give you a little direction for our worship time together and that's this and I've asked myself this question this last week am I in love with God or just his stuff because sometimes those two kind of get mixed up I'm in love with God because of the stuff he gives me and that makes me in love with the stuff or am I just in love with God today when we worship the Lord together ask yourself that question what are you in love with are you in love with him or are just in love with his stuff are you just in love with the blessing today God's inviting us to have a relationship with him to know him and that's really what worship is all about it's coming to this place and saying Lord I want to declare my love for you Not your stuff, not the blessing, but for you. I want to pray one more time that way. Father, I just pray that today, right now, in this moment, our hearts would be very clear and certain about our relationship with you. That we come together today and we declare that we are in love with you and that you are in love with us and that you would lead us now. In Jesus' name we pray. And we say Amen and Amen. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503 266 4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at com Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you encourage you and give you hope.